Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM. Let's create. It was totally personal. It was about how kind I was being to myself as a result of, like, you know, childhood trauma. You know, I think that I was not emotionally available to myself because uh, stuff that I had done in the past, you know, I unfairly, I think I resented my father quite a bit. And, um, and I think I had to find a way to forgive him and myself and um, it was a complicated thing for me to do. But, you know, it took 20 years of therapy and that didn't get me there. But being in this idyllic environment and not talking for 10 days uh, and just walking in silence uh, ended up bringing it out of me. And uh, it brought me back to a time when I was very young and I had, like, killed a, a lizard as a, as a kid. And... That kind of like, you know, the reason I was weeping is because I, I felt so bad for that lizard. And uh, like I was just apologizing profusely in the meditation hall, saying like, you know, I just couldn't believe that I had done that. That was Miguel Arteta. I'm Sam Fragoso. This is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Miguel Arteta is the type of director whose work you have unquestionably seen, even if you do not know the director by name. There's a reason for that, and it's something we get into in the episode, but his filmography includes Star Maps, Chuck and Buck, The Good Girl, Youth and Revolt, 
Cedar Rapids, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day, and his latest film, Beatrice at Dinner. He has an upcoming movie with Alia Shawkat and Lindsay Birch coming out next year called Duck Butter. There are many more films in the work. Miguel is a true working director. He's also the type of soft-spoken person who may sometimes not get his due in the press. After we sat down for an hour, he mentioned to me that this was pretty much his first long individual one-on-one interview. Miguel has been working since 1997. He's made great films since 1997. It's been 20 years and somehow this is his first long interview. Over the next hour, Miguel and I cover his upbringing in San Juan, Puerto Rico, some of his interactions with great directors like Jonathan Demme and Sam Fuller, how he managed to make star maps and get to Beatrice at dinner, and so much more. I've said this before about people who I think are particularly wise, but Miguel does have this energy that I think you'll find. Someone who you meet and you're like, okay, he's been through it. He's been through some amount of life that I have not. And he has all this advice to share and give. And you just want to keep listening and listening until our hour is up. So, finally, here is Miguel Arteta. Miguel? Hey, Sam. How are we feeling? Feeling pretty good. We've had a a lot of pre-chatter before the interview. We did, yes. Which is always a thing that I'm weary of. I never know how that's going to relay into the actual podcast. That's true. Although I think we've been cautiously holding back our brilliance (laughs) so that I could come at... I, I thought that was just me, actually. <laughs> no, I, I, it's I saw, you, too. Yeah, yeah. You've been cautiously holding back. Exactly. Um, I heard you in a quote say that you're like Patrice and that uh, you're not good at small talk. That's correct. That's, that's very true. I think this has been true because the two times I've now talked to you away from this podcast, uh, it's been big <laughs> philosophical or like big filmmaking advice ideas. So I think we're going to do an hour of the podcast with no small talk. All right. That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm into that. You, yes. you want, have you, can we try that? Yes. Have you ever done an interview like that? No. Okay. Well, then this is going to be a first. We won't have any banter or, or any like charming repartee. We'll just there can be right some in. charm. Okay. It, doesn't, it doesn't have to be completely devoid of charm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I guess I want to start at the beginning. Um, you're born in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Yep. Your dad is a Chrysler auto salesman. You're traveling around a lot. What's an early, what, you know, what is your earliest memory of being a kid with your father? You know, it's always at the beach. My father loved the beach. And so he would take us there every weekend. And at a certain point, we started, you know, uh, going to get fish. He, he made a fish tank out of uh, car windows and like uh, we put salt water in it and we made it work and we were like let's go to the beach and and hunt for fish live fish to put into the fish tank <laughs> and we ended up doing like three or four times a week and it was a very special time together mm. being in in the water 
um, Puerto Rico is a weird place, you know, where it's a weird combination of cultures. Like you have the macho stuff from Latin America and you have all the commercialism of the United States. And in some ways, it's like a little bit of a perverted culture. It's, you know, it's a colony and there's some sad things about that. And so getting, getting in the water with him, it was very pure, you know, getting away from that sort of twist of cultures into something that just felt like, you know. It felt distinctly different than your day-to-day life when you got into the water. Yeah, it was really nice. And we both, you know, it's an activity that we could do without talking. And we both, <laughs> <laughs> we both love, love, love the, the ocean and... You know, I don't know. We really saw eye to eye there. Yeah, an activity you could do without talking. Is that the ideal activity? I think that's one of... Everybody should have that with their significant others. Mm. You know, I think it's a good thing to do. Where was your mother uh, at the time? She uh, was a homemaker. You know, there were four of us. So she was busy, you know, pulling it all together. And um, so she was at home and, you know, just involved in all of our lives, making sure we were good. Mm. But we all love the beach very much. I think that was something that, that held the family together in a nice way. Yeah, in, in a way, I'm just thinking about now, you know, your latest film, it has a, that quality of it's bookended by being serene. It's very peaceful. The proceedings that follow and, and that precede it are not peaceful at all. It seems like at a young age you were reconciling those two things they were they're very much juxtaposed the peacefulness of a beach and this sort of escape and then the constant moving from place to place i think so yeah uh is that uh, too much of a stretch no it's not a stretch you know i i, I was always into hobbies that were like you know about swimming flying you know, I, I would make rockets and fly those and i think there was a purity to that that i that i loved and uh I had a skateboard that I put a wind sail in it, you know, so I would sail with the skateboard in an all airport. And uh, things literally used to get away from the ground that, like, you have to walk on every day. Exactly. I think there's something there. I think you might be right. I've never thought about that. I think (laughs) there might be, might be right. Well, look, we're uh, five minutes into the podcast. We made a revelation. That's uh, we can call it quits. That's a, that's not small talk for sure. No, there's no small talk. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's interesting. Why do you think you were drawn to that? Drawn to sort of an escape? You know, I also did origami, which was like a, a, a crazy nerdy thing to get lost in. Um, I don't know. You know, I I, I think that we had a we were a, a you know a big family, six of us growing together, and there was something. That I mean that I wasn't quite happy with uh, the situation. You know, I felt like uh, uh, I, w- I needed to find a way to express myself. That I didn't feel maybe it's being the youngest of four. You know, where you don't feel as heard. Mm. And um, I, I was trying to find something where I could just pour all my attention into that would be my own. I guess I was trying to find something I could call my own. You know. Did your parents or your other siblings not give you a lot of attention? Me and my brother were four years apart, so I, you know it was more of a, a, a times contentious relationship. So and my sisters were quite a bit older; they were nine, eight, nine years older. So they were nice to me, but it, none of them were in the friend sphere mm. when we were growing up. You know, 
So uh, I, I came four years after my brother. And so I think I, I was just, you know, yeah, kind of a lonely, dedicated kid to, you know, dedicated to hobbies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> a lonely, dedicated kid, no, dedicated to hobbies. Yes. Has that changed now? No, not much. Not much. I mean, uh, you're just an adult now. I'm just an adult. And uh, um, I still love the, you know, like when I'm writing, I love the fact that you can just get yourself lost in it. And um, the aspects of directing that I deal with other people have always been hard for me. I don't have a director's personality in which I can easily command, you know, 60 people and and (laughs) just have them, you know, bend them to my will. Like uh, I, uh, you know, you find ways to, to do that in a benevolent way by being stubborn. You know, I'm very stubborn. I'm a mm. Capricorn. And then people, after a while, they realize, okay, well, maybe he's not inspiring me to just move quickly towards this thing, but, like, there's not going to be any other options. Right. And I think I can be disarming. So I've managed to make it make it so I know how to get people comfortable. But uh, but it is not, you know, I, I'm not the big gregarious, like... Uh, sort of bossy director. Right. Type. I think you're describing uh, the thing that I caught on, which is there's a softness <laughs> to you that's very... Uh, I, I do think it's disarming, though. Oh, thank you. Because oh. you, you sort of... You create this environment where, at least in my case, I felt like, oh, I, I can just say pretty much anything. I mean, not anything, but <laughs> uh, a lot of things. And I imagine you've relayed that and made that the case on set i i tried to do that yeah i tried to make it so the actors feel empowered and and uh the crew is like feel it feels like we have a common goal that we're like excited to get towards to but um you know it's hard to self-examine that but I, i i definitely think my approach comes from from a more sort of soft approach and uh recently i had i work with um martin sheen in a TV show, and he's the first person that pointed that out to me. And she said, "You know, you're very disarming, very disarming as a director." And uh, it's the first time that I've kind of became self-aware that, like, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's that's my manipulative way of getting getting my way with the actors. Yeah, um, everyone's a little bit manipulative. I, I mean, like, absolutely. I mean, there's no director that is not a little bit passive aggressive too. <laughs> it's like uh, uh, it comes with the territory. Are you sure. often passive aggressive on set? Um, you know, I I hate it, but like uh, you know, it's hard not to be when you're in that position. You know, <laughs> what's an example on on the last film? Like you know, like if you're not getting your way, you, you know, and you don't want to yell at somebody, sometimes you gotta like you know, you end up being a little bit like, well, if we had done it this way, like you oh, know, or yeah. like. Uh, or, uh, you start getting into the hypotheticals, like if we had done this, then yeah. this wouldn't have happened, and then you would have been there, and I would have been here. Exactly. Or being like, you know, if I could only do this, uh, then I wouldn't have to deal with that. And then, you know, it's kind of a sideways way of asking somebody to do something. You end up having to do it because it's 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 a crazy job, you know, to where you're having to have such a intimacy and bond with so many different people. And really find a way for them to be comfortable and, and get the very best of them and for them to share, you know? Mm. To me, the feeling that you want to create in people is jumping out of like a very tall, tra- you know, like place into an empty pool, chest first, and not 
not giving a fuck. Just like going like, all right, here I go. Here it is. <laughs> Swan dive to death. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, to do that, to get people to do that like gleefully is the goal. Without complaints. Just, yeah, and just like loving it. Like being like, yeah. They go home that night and be like, that was a good day. That was a fantastic day. I like, you know, did a swan dive through the air, like not giving a fuck. Did you know any of that in 1997 when you were making your first film? No, I was pretty, like, I remember on day one of Star Maps, my first film, thinking, how is it possible that we're going to do 29 days of this? <laughs> That's a great thing to think the first day. I was like, there's just no way <laughs> we can get through it. But um, it happened to me when I first started directing shorts, that, like, uh, once I get on the set, like, all my nervousness and shyness does go away, like, because I get focused on what, we need to do to tell the story and like and i love it mm. and i love it so much so i love directing i love the creativity that goes into thinking all right we're creating the little bits of film or tape that you need to tell the story but like really what we're doing is flirting with an audience is like figuring out how to tell the story in a way that we're making the audience be an active participant right and so a lot of the what's not said and not shown is just as important and it's really fun you know it's like a fun puzzle realizing how to tell it the story the best way possible when do you think you first told a story well mm, i have some really bad ones you know I, I i made a short film that was a silent movie a tribute to charlie chaplin called the bottle and like uh uh in the end of it the actor uh, gets somebody breaks a bottle in their head and I showed it at the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston to 800 people, and I brought my big cassette player to record the audience's response because I thought there'd be so much laughing that I would have to re-edit the movie. Right. And there was, like, nothing. At the end, when the <laughs> bottle gets broken, one person goes, like, ugh. And uh, it was, yeah, it was hard. I didn't make a movie for another year and a half. But uh, So uh, what year is that? That is, like, 1988. Okay. But I think in 1990, I made a short film called Every Day is a Beautiful Day. That was my Wesleyan uh, college thesis. Mm. And it's a musical with singing potatoes. Uh, it's about how much I love French rice, really. Um, is that true? Yes. And, uh, and, uh, I they always say, make films where you know the things you're making. Oh, yeah. that's not right. I had the right quote down. I think the right thing is to make things about things you love to eat. But uh, um, we're going to use that quote. We're going to get rid of mine. <laughs> yes. But I, 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 you know, it was like a big like it has singing, dancing, and I feel really good about it. Pretty, pretty. Uh, I felt pretty original. So that was in 1990. Yeah. Can we go back to the short film from 1988? Yeah. So when you're going to this theater, and it's 800 people. You're in Boston. You bring a cassette player to record the laughter you think you're going to get. Yeah. Which, one, tells me two things. Mm -hmm. You have confidence in yourself. <laughs> There's some hubris there, for sure. And two, you uh, are willing to change your film and add audience laughter to it uh, <laughs> because it's going to make it better. <laughs> so it shows confidence and flexibility. Yes. How do you move forward when that does so poorly it was pretty bad you like know how, what how, how are you feeling when you're walking back onto the street 
I mean, I was d depressed, seriously depressed, you know, like catatonic for a little bit and, uh, uh, and just really heavily discouraged because, uh, you know, I really lean into making movies as a thing that gave me confidence. You know, I was making short films all the time and I had worked really hard on this. But, you know, I think it was like realizing, you know, having to regroup and realizing, you know, your greatest weapon in telling stories is definitely like the weird shit weird thoughts that you have peripheral thoughts that you think maybe i shouldn't even share this with anybody mm -hmm. they're useless this is the way you actually see people you know like when you're going through your day you have weird thoughts about them and that 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 weird way in which you see people is really actually your interesting best. stuff yeah it's the thing that is it's the thing that will help you really tell a story in an amazing way and so I think that that experience taught me, like, you know, don't try to imitate Charlie Chapman. Like, uh, what is the way that, you know, for better or worse, how you see people and you know, what do you have to say about people? Right. Yeah. So. That's a good lesson. I mean, I, I like that you found the silver lining in that. Yeah, it was good. Like, you know, I, um, I went to Wesleyan University after that and um, I studied with Janine Basinger, who, who teaches you all the golden era of Hollywood movies. Mm hmm and I have been become very obsessed with those, and I realized she kind of taught me why I like the black and white great all movies is because, you know, the people that did them really well, the sheer force of their personalities made them uh, came through no matter what genre was given to them. Mm. You know, you can tell Howard Hawks movie whether yeah, it's a music or a comedy. Howard Hawks movie, you know immediately. Yeah, and it, and it is the the sheer force of the way they see the world that made them. You know, shine even in the most constricted mm. of uh, environments. You know, and uh, it just it just kind of proved the point that if you define the medium in your own terms, if you like, if you just like use your point of view, you are going to end up with something interesting. So, do you think your point of view came through in Chuck and Buck? Uh, definitely. I mean, this is a weird thing because you know I did not write it. It's Mike White. Mike White wrote it, but uh, you know we have a really interesting friendship and, and working relationship where we are very different people but I think we have similar priorities and, and you know the way we see people does align like uh, in what way is that uh, in in that like you know there's great sadness in how we cannot really connect with other people and that you know you want to try to strive towards that kind of connection you know and um, and even if it's obsessive or unhealthy, right? You know, there's compassion towards it. So it's sort of a combination of a hardness and a, and a softness. Mm -hmm. You know, like having sort of a cynical point of view about how people are. You know, how we can't escape our fucked up parts. Right. But also a, a, a sense of like, but that that is what's great. Right. <laughs> you know, and uh, having that, you know, those two things. Uh, which, you know, ends up being like embracing characters who are, don't know how to fit in, you know. I oscillate back and forth constantly about giving and not giving, sharing myself and not sharing myself when it comes to connecting with people. Because yeah. it's the thing that makes me happy. I mean, it's in part why this show exists. Right. But there's also the flip side where not everyone wants that connection in the way that you want it in fact the connections so rarely align yeah which is why there's frustration and there's <laughs> sadness and there's 
there's there's fear of rejection even between friends yes all the time i like I, I do this thing where i like asking whether it's in work or in life asking people what are your two biggest concerns right now okay what are your two biggest concerns then we're both going to do this right now my two biggest concerns um god the first one is more trivial okay. than anything but cool. it, but it's that i have such a high opinion of myself in a way, mm-hmm. and that sounds really arrogant, I know, but... You're a smart guy, I can see that. Well, I'm okay. <laughs> I guess my main concern, you know, the film that we've been talking about that I'm making, I want that to go well. Mm-hmm. So that's a concern, but yeah. the concern is bigger because it's ideological. It's, does this idea of myself, which is someone who makes things and can be successful, is that actually going to happen? Mm-hmm. So that's one concern, and that really is about 7,000 concerns. Yeah, that, that's a folder of concerns. That's a folder of concerns. Um, and the second one is <laughs> if the first concern does not pan out, as in I don't do as, as great as I want to, is that okay? Right. Yeah, well, the answer to that is easy. It's definitely okay. But, you know, like you can't make a short film thinking it's going to be your calling card. Right. That's a disaster in the making. Yeah. That's why I always try to encourage people to be like, do me a favor, make a short film once a month mm-hmm. and have them, some of them just like straight up suck or just be like stupid ideas that just bring you joy. You know, make a music video about your dog, mm. you know, so that way, like you have to take that find a way to take that you know and this is something for filmmaking that really applies because uh it is such a cumbersome art form you know like even with the price of cameras being low just getting all the people all the resources the editing the music putting it together you know like it's cumbersome and so there's a lot of pressure and you know if you were thinking as a feature director of you know oh my god somebody gave me $10 $10 million to make this movie, and you think about what that means, you could, would be paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, when you're making your, your shorts, you have to be like, fuck it, I'm going to make 10 more. Right. This is just one of many. Like, so even if it sucks, it doesn't matter at all. Because it's the next one. Yeah, there's the next one right around the corner. Mm-hmm. If you want to direct, you have to have that, that the thing that's like, it's a muscle, I'm just going to do it a lot. Yeah. It's interesting because I have that muscle when it comes to journalism. Because I've been freelancing for six, yeah. seven years. Constant rejection. Yeah. And constant, there's been success too. Yeah. But I, I always wrote things and pitched things. It's like, look, I could take it or leave it. Yeah. I'm going to do it or I'm not going to do it, but there's going to be more. Yeah. And I, I, I see where you're coming from. I think I have to yeah. adopt that same. You know, I'm sure some interviews don't go great, and then you're like, well, the next one might be great. Yeah, mo- most like, of them are, are genius. Yes, of uh, course. No. <laughs> so, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, most of them are okay, but uh, it depends. What are your two concerns? My two concerns right now is one is to be present in this interview because, you know, I'm 52, and when you start to get to that age, you realize that uh, it's easy to repeat your greatest hits of what you have said to other people, what you have found useful or, yes. or gets a response. So, like, I don't want to do that. So that's that's one of my biggest concerns <laughs> right now. That's a good concern. 
And uh, I'm, I'm going to thank you for that because uh, I know some of the things you've said, <laughs> and uh, so far you haven't repeated. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. I want to apply that to my marriage as well. Um, uh, in my my next biggest concern is that was a joke. Semi, yes. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, my next biggest concern is like you know I have problems with uh, get, being in shape, and you, when you get to this age too, you start realizing you know the time is now. Like you're gonna either have a healthy second half of your life or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was taught by my grandmother who gave me a lot of French fries. I, I didn't eat as a kid. I, I was like skeletal. Mm-hmm. And I, was, I would protest my mom's food. For some reason, I think I blame my mom unfairly for uh, stuff. So uh, like anything she cooked, I would like, you know, I was an asshole. Like I would reject it. I was mean. And, wow. Uh, and so I got a skeletal, like to the point that people were worried. So my grandmother took me to Spain and gave me like French fries and fried eggs every day, three times a meal, to like because I love them. And I until I, I think started to equate like eating with comfort, you know, uh, and with love into a, a way that is like a, a, an issue in my life now. So that's you, you my, think that's an issue? Yeah, definitely. Like you know. Um, I definitely, uh, uh, the times in my life where I've been healthy, you know, after I did the first three films, uh, after The Good Girl, I felt so unhealthy. I was like, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to take a year off and I'm just going to do yoga and go to the gym. So hold on. The Good Girl comes out in 2002. That's the movie with uh, Jennifer Jennifer Aniston, Jake Gyllenhaal, Colin Hawfield. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, And... um, it does pretty well, and rather than doing what most people would do, which is capitalize on that success, right. I had a writer's block, then I freaked out, and I was just like, oh my God, I kind of had to stop. Also, I think I had gotten so unhealthy that mm-hmm. I got to the point where I like I should just get into yoga, and, and it ended up being an incredibly awesome year because I watch all movies all day long, mm-hmm. and I did yoga. And, so that's 2002, 2003. Yeah, like, and uh, I lost 60 pounds. Holy cow! Yeah, I like uh, I I like went down to like a hundred and you know sixty uh, or hundred no less than that you know I was like so I, people thought I was sick mm-hmm. uh, but um, back to skeletal back to skeletal and it was but it, it felt great so I clearly I'm doing things in an obsessive way so I guess my second concern is like how do I find a balance of being more physically healthy and so I can keep doing the l- things that I love and loving the people that I love. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting that you pivoted to that time in your life after the good girl. Because I, I wrote down in my notes to ask you about what's happening with you between 2002 and 2009. Because you, so, you know, for context, you know, you made Star Maps, then you did Chuck and Buck. You did uh, Good Girl, and then you directed an episode of Freaks and Geeks, and it seemed like you did a lot very quickly. You described being unhealthy. Now you have a seven-year period where you direct some TV episodes, and I think a TV movie, and and I think a short. Uh, There's no feature, though. Yeah. I I definitely freaked out. I had like an early midlife crisis, for sure. How old are you then? I was 33. I think when we you know finished promoting that movie right and I I, I yeah I mean it was pretty crazy because I had opportunity to make movies and I didn't I wouldn't take them I even wrote a movie to prove that I could write and we had Emma Thompson 
at that and wanting to do it and uh and an investor giving me 10 million dollars with final cut and i was like no we're not gonna do it why because i didn't think it was gonna be good i was having your first concern <laughs> like i was <laughs> suffering from your first concern um, um, but I think it's a combination of things is like, I think that I, I, I had emotional work to do that ended up happening to, for me. Fortunately, I dated somebody that took me to Vipassana to meditation camp mm-hmm. where I had 10, 10 days of silence, uh, and I meditated. And I think, uh, all the therapy I had done had taken me to a certain place, but doing that allowed me to really kind of forgive uh the injuries of when i was young and i guess i needed to do that but the, the other two reasons was also i had incredible scripts mike white and and uh, wrote chuck and buck and the good girl and those are two of the best scripts i i have ever read and so when it was time to be like well now i'm gonna write something it became very um daunting you know like that's high competition to try to compete against mike White's scripts mm-hmm. He's like my favorite writer there is. And I also think that maintaining success is more scary than getting it. You should think about that when you're doing uh, uh, your short. You have nothing to lose, you know, when you're like trying to become successful at something. But once you had some success, it's like, you know, if you don't, to maintain it, there's a lot at stake. Yeah. I think that's why a lot of people freak out on their sophomore efforts. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a combination of that and me having to do this personal work where I, I, I you know, I have to, I ended up in, you know, in Washington state at a meditation camp, freaking out, just weeping in front of everybody in the hall. And, you know. Were you weeping because of this fear of not being able to maintain success or was it about something else? It was totally personal. It was about how kind I was being to myself as a result of, like, you know, childhood trauma, you know, I think that I was not emotionally available to myself mm-hmm. because uh, stuff that I had done in the past, you know, I unfairly, I think I resented my father quite a bit. And, um, and I think I had to find a way to forgive him and myself. And um, it was a complicated thing for me to do. But, you know, it took 20 years of therapy and that didn't get me there. But being in this idyllic environment and not talking for 10 days hmm. uh, and just walking in silence uh, ended up bringing it out of me. And uh, it brought me back to a time when I was very young and I had like killed a, a lizard as a, as a kid. And that kind of like, you know, the reason I was weeping is because I, I felt so bad for that lizard. And uh, like I was just apologizing profusely in the meditation hall thing, like, you know, I just couldn't believe that I had done that. And so uh, I guess it was sort of finding more compassion in my life. It was something I really needed to do. How's that for small talk? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> it's so fascinating because you're, you're toggling back and forth between something I understand and something I'm a little unclear on which is it sounds like you needed or very much wanted to have a conversation with your father that um, was honest where you got some things out 
I, you know, I did. And I had, I was able to do that before with therapy and um, it was not satisfying. So I think that the final step I needed to do is to... It wasn't satisfying? It wasn't satisfying for me. You know, like it was, I'm glad it happened. And I think it was good for me, my relationship with my father. But there was a piece of, you know, when you're holding anger for a, a long time, you're hurting yourself. And like, um, you have to end up forgiving yourself. And also finding that time when you first became angry and understanding that, that there was a, a reasonable reason why that happened and uh, why you st- stop avoiding some feelings, you know, holding this anger and not letting it flow. Mm. And so uh, it was more about me being okay with uh, the person that I had turned out as a, as a person that had kept all that inside. I mean, you've turned out to be a compassionate person. Is, is that- I, I, I try. I think, you know, I really think that there's endless work in that in that department and I feel like I'm very happy aware of it but I really um Miguel yeah you cried decades later about killing a lizard as a kid that is if that is not compassion or something I don't really know what is I mean that's impressive that's uh the sign of at least um, a decent human being. Thank you, thank you. But you know, I think I was thirty-eight when that happened, and I, um, it's like long overdue <laughs> uh, at that time. So um, I think that 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 experience set me in a better course that I'm I'm enjoying now. Mm. So. so you get back to directing. I get back to directing. It was really painful not to direct for seven years. It was diff- difficult, but because uh, you know that's what I love doing. But I finally, you know, I went to New York. That helped me. I got away from L.A. I spent two years in New York. And uh, and I wrote a couple of screenplays, which also helped me. And it was really nice to write the screenplay that somebody would make because, you know, after, you know, like comparing my work to, to Mike's in some ways, I was like, I needed to just prove that I could do that. Right. And then um, Bob Weinstein calls and says, I have this, this book, uh, Youth in Revolt, and Michael Sarah wants to do it. And I had seen Michael Sarah in Arrested Development and uh, also in uh, Juno and, and mo- most importantly in Superbat. And I was a super fan. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so it was a very scary experience dealing with Bob Weinstein. It was a weird re- reintroduction to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Welcome back. Yeah, he was, it was, he was yelling. I was at the Peninsula Hotel. I went to his hotel room in the morning and I heard him screaming from the hallway cursing my name and my lawyer's name as he approached because we were having trouble making the deal Mm -hmm. and he was just yelling at me because he hated what I was demanding from this deal you know I wouldn't sign up for three films like they usually do they try they they would try to lock you up for for you know other films and and uh and I was like I won't do it and having big arguments. He's saying, I'm invested in you. You know, you, you haven't done anything in seven years. Like, you know, you're lucky that I'm giving you a break. You'd be eating toast in the back of an alley if I didn't give you this movie. And like, What did you think when he was saying that? Well, I thought that was a beautiful metaphor, me eating toast in the back of an alley. Um, I kind of liked him <laughs> because of did that. Did you say that out loud to him? Yeah. That's a beautiful metaphor. 
I, I, I kind of smile, <laughs> but uh, no, it, I was scared. Like, and he was so, he must have been having a bad day. Uh, he was, because it was a, a tirade. Mm-hmm. And, and it got to be kind of fun because I was like, all right, I'm not making this movie, is what I thought. I was a little heartbroken because I was really looking forward to working with Michael. And I was like, it's not going to happen. I have to get out of here. So I was like, okay, I'm going to let him exhaust himself and then I'm going to leave. But there wouldn't even be a break, Sam. I mean, literally, like, he would take a pause, and I would try to go, and then he would start again. <laughs> and, like, I'd, so many times I was trying to get out of the couch, and he wouldn't stop. I, was, I, I couldn't just leave in mid-sentence. And um, the last thing, he, he, it went on for a long time, like five, ten minutes. And then ended up just him being winded and looking at me and saying, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. And, like, it was so strange. And I... Ended up kind of believing him. I was like... That he wouldn't hurt you. Yeah. And he didn't. I mean, he was tough to work with, but he also was a really passionate collaborator and, and respected me. Mm. So, you know, like right off the bat, I was like, after talking to to Michael for five minutes, he was 19. And I was like, Michael, you're going to write this script with me. We're going to throw out this script out and we're going to start anew. And I told Bob Weinstein... So this 19-year-old is going to write this script with me. And to his credit, he's like, fuck it, I, I'll pay you minimum, but fine, try it. And how great is that, you know? Yeah. And Michael turned out to be an amazing writer and a collaborator. And we had a lot of fun making that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ended up, uh, And we had a lot of fun, you know, butting heads with Bob. And I think Bob had a lot of fun. Fun. He he said we were the third most stubborn people he's ever dealt with in the business. The third most. Yes. Did he tell you who was one and two? No, I'm dying to know. It's hard to hear that he was a a good collaborator right now. I think. You know, I I've never met Harvey Weinstein, um, so I don't know anything about that. Yeah. And uh, Bob had you know his anger issues, but um, I do have to say that he. He got the best out of me, and he was willing to spend money in things that matter, like mm-hmm. a like a screenwriter. You know, like afterwards, we wanted Mike White to do write the reshoots and cost a lot of money, and he paid it happily. A lot of studio heads wouldn't do that. Did he ever uh, question your authority? All the time. I mean, he would call me in the middle of the night saying, you know, if you cast Steve Buscemi, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> Like, he finally gave in, and he's like, you can have to show me, but if this movie doesn't work, I'm going to fucking kill you. But, you know, this is the thing. It was an argument between him and me. You could argue with him. Right. And he's only at one-stop shopping. There's not a committee of people who are afraid for their jobs, who are just, like, you know, passive-aggressively backstabbing you. Right. You're literally dealing with somebody who's coming with a dagger straight to your stomach. But... He respects when you come, you know, like, and he, he thought for himself, you know, he wanted the best friend to be played by somebody super famous and was really on me about that. But then when I got this guy, Eric Newsom, that was a friend of Michael's from Toronto, to audition with Michael, he watched the audition and immediately said, fuck, that's undeniable. He's got the part. Right. Very studio people would use their own sense of taste and intelligence to make those decisions so i respect that was the movie a success you know i, I don't think it bought i i think bob told me at one point you know you, you don't worry we're gonna make some money on it eventually 
So I think it is sort of broke even and made some money. Mm. But I, I was a little heartbroken that he didn't get out more there. I thought Michael's performance was amazing in there. You know, he was playing himself and his doppelganger mm-hmm. in that film. I, I, I think it's a good film. And, and you're right, though. It didn't get out enough at the time. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It, I don't know if it didn't expand enough or if it didn't catch on. But, I mean, hasn't that happened with your work before where you feel like, oh, this is really something, and then it doesn't get enough play? It happens all the time. Yeah, it's happening all, <laughs> all the time. Although indie movies are changing, you know, Beatrice at dinner, like people tell me it's a success at $7 million nowadays for an indie movie. That's that's a good thing. Mm. But, you know, um, I think the real test for me is the test of times. So I'm making movies that hopefully people will remember in time. You know, Chuck and Buck didn't really make that much money when it came out, but right. I am so proud of it. And, it's still playing, you know. It's still quoted and cited often. I mean, it's... It's in airplanes. This year it came out in airplanes. Really? It was so strange. I got some friends who sent me a picture. Look what it's on their comedy on American Airlines. Is that the goal, to make movies that are on airplanes? Ten years after, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's so you had this early midlife crisis. Mm-hmm. And it takes you seven years to really snap out of that. Mm-hmm. How do you feel after Youth and Revolt? Really good. Really good. It was, um, you know, I'm very grateful to not only Bob Weinstein, but also Michael Sarah, because he was such a great collaborator. And, you know, I, like, I found somebody that I had fun. We had fun making that movie, collaborating and being really creative. And um, I, I felt unlocked. I felt like, okay, you know, I'm back to be able to do mm. things. And so, you know, uh, Ed Helms uh, and Alexander Payne approached me with uh, Cedar Rapids right away. And uh, we had a lot of fun making that film. You know, it was nice to move into another com- comedy. I think it was great for me in my life to do two comedies back to back after the seven years of not making movies. Did it make you feel happier? Yeah, for sure. And uh, at what point are you meeting your wife in all of this? I meet my wife just as I'm finishing the editing of Youth in Revolt. Okay. So this is all happening at the same time. Yeah. No, like life starts to go, you know, I go to a a Halloween party, uh, Hollywood. Uh, uh, <laughs> You're smiling when you say that. Yeah. Like, you know, Hollywood movie star's house. I'm dressed as a cow. and Because uh, you thought that was a good move. I wanted to be dressed as Winnie the Pooh because that was more accurate. Mm-hmm. But my assistant couldn't find a Winnie the Pooh costume anywhere. So I got a cheap cow costume instead. Cheap cow. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to be a cheap cow. And I walk into this party and, and there is just teen dress as a cowgirl. Mm. And so it was very meant to be. So you go up to her. The, the host introduces me and says, you know, I'm friends with the host. And the host says, this is one of my oldest friends. I knew who she was because I had met her. Eight years before, I tried to hire her. She's a great casting director with her partner, Kim Davis. And I tried to hire them for The Good Girl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had a great meeting, but they didn't want to work with us. They were busy making Charlie's Angels. So I really admired her already, her work. And, uh, uh, and I fancied her back then. Um, I thought she was pneumatic, in the words of a friend. And uh, we instantly hit it off. She had been uh, left her, I think her husband and her ended up breaking up their marriage about like seven or eight months before I, uh, that. And 
So uh, it was the right time and place for us, and we connected right away. Did it seem like an immediate connection between the two of you? For me, it was. Yes, for sure. <laughs> like, uh, and I remember being very crass with her. Like, uh, really? She was talking about you know, the seven or eight months of being alone, and I think I ended up being very crass. Like, it just came out of me, like, you know, I think you should get down with somebody right now. <laughs> <laughs> Bold. And she's British, and, you know, she, like, just perked up and ran away from me. And um, That's a fair response. Yeah, it's a fair response. I tried to get back to her the whole party, but she kept running away from me. And, and then we kept running into each other, and I finally managed to go on a date with her. Mm. But it was very clear for me right right away. Like on our second date uh, in Valentine's Day, we, yeah, I was I was sure. Your is your second date was on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Yeah, and the first day was two days before. Wow. So. And then ever since then, it's been. I've been in love. Yes, it's been great. Very very blessed. Does that make it easier to make films being in love? Definitely. I mean, to do anything in life, I think it's uh, it's good. If it, if the goal is to feel like you're, you know, jumping into an empty pool chest first, having someone that loves you and gets you at home, waiting for you at home, is a helpful thing. Mm. I think for me, and I've heard other people describe this as well, the balance between maintaining a healthy, loving relationship and being an obsessive, crazy person in the work that you do is not always easy. No, you need to have the same priorities and respect each other. You know, I respect Justine is like a genius casting director, and she loves it, loves it, breathes it, and loves it. And actors come alive in front of her, right? And she uh, thinks about it. You know, the way she breaks down a script and think about it, it just it, it turns me on like her passion for what she does and also we have similar you know we you know tried you know what we think is important is more or less the same and i don't think you can have anything unless you have that you can have the greatest love but if you don't have similar priorities it's not going to last like uh you have to sort of value the same things mm. for for it to be that that thing that works the priorities have to align they do. They do. Because, you know, at the end of the day, if your partner cares about stuff that you think is just stupid. It's like, it's really hard to respect them. That's tough. Yeah. It's tough because, you know, you want your partner to not be the same person you are. Yeah. You want them to be different. Yeah. And, you know, like me and Justine are, like, she taught me love of dogs. I I, I didn't really have a love of dogs. And, and, you know, she one of the most important things in her life is dogs. I think you. I think they heard their names. They're barking now. It's insane. The the moment you said the word dogs, they started barking. And you know, it's one of it's a thing that has enriched my life incredibly. Mm. And it ended up being about something that I care about. You know, loving a dog is definitely about you know having joy and compassion in your life. Uh, on the compassion front, mm-hmm. uh, I have a quote here from you that I wanted to read. Okay. You said, uh, I think that consumer society decided compassion and generosity is not good for business. It wanted to breed consumers and create people who are selfish and apathetic and cynical. And they have succeeded tremendously. 
we're all caught up in it. Yeah. I've been rereading that quote today because you've succeeded tremendously and yet you don't strike me as selfish, apathetic, or cynical. Well, that's the goal, I think, for me in life. The thing to keep working on and it's humbling. I think you want to work on that. But I, I do think that we live in sad times. You know, if you think of the 60s as the time where the world had the most amount of resources and we felt mo most free, mm -hmm. you know, it was the height of the party, really. And um, a lot of love and compassion was available. I think that's why the 60s came through because, you know, we were... It, the, it was pent up. It's the, it's the period in, in humanity where we had to work the least because it was the boom, <laughs> the boom, you know, least amount of people for most amount of oil. And like, you know, like it just like, you know, every generation before the three or four generations had each done better. Mm -hmm. So it's full of hope. And, and I think that it allowed people to be at the very best. They value the right things, you know, brotherhood, sisterhood, like, uh, you know, workers' rights, uh, civil rights, all these things were priorities. People gave a shit. People were outraged by the, by lying, you know? And I think it scared the shit out of, like, capitalist society and consumer society. They looked at that and they were like, what do we have to do so this never, ever, ever happens again? Like, we have to, like, systematically dismantle this. Mm -hmm. And we did, you know? Like, you know, rock became soft rock and companies, you know, really fine-tuned advertisement to the point that you know people have become completely complacent and like that idea of caring giving a shit for other people has all nearly gone away uh, you think it's gone away i think i think madison having realized we could breed consumers like 20 years from now you know we can start now like mm -hmm. let's get them when they're now and like we can breed the the, the perfect consumer the person that won't care for other people and will just be like, I just want to buy stuff for myself. I only gain value from what I purchase. Mm. And they succeeded. And uh, I'm very concerned about how you reverse that. Oh. Well, that's the first time you've sounded cynical, actually. Really? But it, I'm, well, I'm saying just in this conversation. Yeah. I think I, that's the first time I thought, oh, that's, I'm not saying you're wrong. Mm -hmm. I think you're probably right. <laughs> There's more young people. Uh, we do have to thank Trump for having more people shaken up and thinking about these priorities and values mm -hmm. uh, more now than we did last year. So it gives me a little bit of hope that, that it can be. But that outrage for lying seems to be really gone. I mean, think about it in your life how many people, when they're lied to, they're like, mm, that's fine, whatever, that's par for the course. Mm. Not caring about other people. Not caring when somebody's lying to them. But, you but know. I, I'm going to say, in, in our defense, yeah. the young people, I'll speak on behalf of young, you yeah. speak on behalf of old. You know, I'm not disagreeing with you entirely, but there, the thing I will say is that the reason you may find some selfishness within my generation, and I do think our generation is fairly empathetic and very aware of the world around them, but... Um, and this is just very practical and it relates to capitalism, the jobs are not there. Now, I'm not blaming you, your generation entirely, but we inherited a world and a system that is, does, is not conducive to employment. We, we, you know, back when you guys went to college, 
if you went to college, you're getting a job. Yeah. That's just not the case anymore. And um, so that breeds selfishness. It breeds like, I don't care about what my I, friend is doing. I need to make it on my own because I need to make a living. Yeah, no, it does. I mean, uh, I'm all for generational anger, and I think there will be more of it coming <laughs> uh, uh, because we have definitely stolen your future. And uh, Oh, uh, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I was wondering where to go. Oh, uh, it was stolen. It was stolen. We, we squandered <laughs> it. But uh, I do think it's, it's a tougher time. But, you know, uh, when you look at the population at, at large, you know, like uh, we have not educated ourselves as well as we used to 40 years ago. And that lack of emphasis on education, you know, the people around us are lucky to have a lot. Most of them have a really good education. This is the exception to the norm. You know, the general population has been cheated out of even worse than jobs. They've been cheated mm-hmm. out of like, you know, even an education. You yeah. Know? And but that's in part because the curriculum has not caught up to what it means to be a functional or high functioning person uh, in the world. I'll just give you an example. Mm-hmm. When I went to journalism school my freshman year of college, what they were teaching was already seven years behind what you needed to know to make it then like if you were leaving college after one year somehow you would be seven years behind now if you stayed in journalism school for four years who knows how behind you'd be right because the world continues i think what we're not accounting for is how quickly things are changing things are changing and how rapidly the curriculum needs to change to suit those kids yeah, it's really hard because not only do the kids have to change and the curriculum has to change, the teachers yeah, have, have to, to be of the aware, aware of the of the world around them changing. Be super adaptive, or at least be like acknowledge that like young people might be able to adapt even quicker than. And no um, one is less adaptive than the educational system. Yes, uh, there is a lot of problems, but it, listen, it's undervalued and underfunded. So like. Right. Um, uh, you're not getting the best quality people going to it because it doesn't pay. I know. So if you had more, if it paid better and if, and if it was valued better, you would get more creative people who hopefully could, you know, do what you're talking it's about. It's true. I've said this. My dad's been teaching public school for 20 years. And we have, we have this conversation all the time about, and this is not just about teaching. It's about a lot of jobs where we need people. This conversation has gotten very political all of a sudden. Yeah. But... If you're not paying someone to do it well enough, you're not going to get someone from an Ivy League school. Or just someone who's you know, or, or clever. Yeah, just just because, look, college education costs you minimum 80000 for four years. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I mean, you do get actually the clever teachers who are willing to do it for nothing, and, and thank God. Yes, but it becomes like a patron saint scenario. Exactly. Uh, which is, is is not right, but you know. Let me ask you something. You think it's possible to make a superhero movie about a teacher? Yeah, if I write it, because <laughs> <laughs> I really would. I'm interested in doing that. Wouldn't that be awesome? Yeah, there, there's a lot to it. I mean, you you know, I think I see two things. I see the character very clearly. I think you do a woman teacher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you have to be careful with what I just said, which is like they can't be saintly. Right. They can be super, but they can't be saintly. 
Right. Because uh, uh, if it, com- it becomes saintly, then it becomes like a lifetime movie. Yeah. No, it's what Lou Reed said. You give me an issue, I'll give you a tissue. <laughs> I love that quote. <laughs> I love that quote. Yeah, I think that movie can be made. It hasn't been made? It hasn't been made. And I, I would love to do the first Marvel, like a teacher, super superpower teacher. Uh, 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 I mean, I, I, I've thought about it a lot because I thought maybe we can do something with movies where we start changing the value of what we value, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, like using the inaneness of where our industry is going to actually, you know, invert the values. I'm interesting. So, so children, when they're kids watching movies on planes, they're like, I want to be like that superhero teacher. Yeah. Uh, so, That's really interesting. So I need to find a way to introduce a lot of action <laughs> into a teacher's life. They're going to be so disappointed, though, once they actually become a teacher. <laughs> and they're like, what? We can't fly mid-class? Yeah. What happened? I saw them when I was seven. I, I, this ruler doesn't have any superpowers. <laughs> Well, so now we may be creating little monsters who have unreasonable expectations. That's true. That's true. I don't want to boohoo this movie. I kind of like it, though. I, it would be fun, right? It, you know, it will sell well. I think it could be really, really good. Like, you know, like, and then the sequel is like, back to school. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> You're already planning for sequels. Of course. I think it's a fun movie. I don't know if it fixes our educational system problems, mm-hmm. but I do think it's a fun idea. Cool. <laughs> um, we only have a few more things. Okay, I think to end, could we just do a greatest hits of your experiences with some really huge Titanic instrumental filmmakers that you've had very intimate experiences with, both as collaborators and and mentors? Yes, I've um, been very lucky. I want to start with just a memory you have of, of Jonathan Demme. You know, I, uh, I, my car mechanic introduced me to Jonathan Demme in 1990. I showed him my musical about singing potatoes, and uh, he was like, Jonathan Demme, you should watch this. Uh, my ex-wife is married to his cousin, and he's making a documentary about his cousin called Cousin Bobby, and he set up this meeting, and Jonathan hired me on the spot to, to be a loader with the great Declan Quinn, the cinematographer. And I spent uh, a couple of months with him making that movie. And we went to Vermont because his cousin, who was this incredible minister that had been with the Black Panthers, he got kicked out for supporting the Black Panthers, but he still had this incredible church in Harlem. And this was a tough Irish guy, but he had a house in Vermont. And we went there, and we were staying in a motel, and I couldn't sleep, and... I was in the second floor. We were in the middle of nowhere in the Canadian border. And I came out around 3 in the morning, and there's just one lamp out there. And sitting underneath it was Jonathan with his baby uh, smoking a cigarette at 3 in the morning. And I watched him. He was thinking. I watched him for a long time. And it was really interesting to see. I I always wonder why he's thinking because he's really thinking hard. I just enjoying the moment there. I'll never forget that image. And I asked him what you were thinking. He was working out like uh, one of the scenes in Silence of the Lambs. But uh, what I loved about him, he, he told me, you know, that directing is about responding, not controlling. Like, you know, controlling is just going to be a boring movie if you try to control everything. It doesn't leave room for the audience. So you need to respond to things. And... Um, 
he was there was such an ease to him. I mean, he literally would direct in his flip flops with his baby in one hand and a cigarette in the other, and the enthusiasm was just contagious. And uh, he would say things like, "And now cosmic action." And uh, <laughs> so I learned a lot about him about how to be a benevolent dictator and and how to um, how to give room, you know, like how to understand that everybody's contributing and you have to be open. Mm. That's great. Yeah. What the 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 image of him sitting there, child and cigarette, contemplating. You got such a unique window. That image must be so vivid. It re- it really is. Uh, it really is. It was a beautiful thing to get to know him a little bit. He had he had uh, it's just an aura to him, where like the joy of of life was contagious. You know. Mm. He was a curious man, you know, like, and uh, and his curiosity was really, really, really infectious. Have the best directors you've met been very curious people? Yes. Have you met Spike Jones? Mm-mm. He'll ask you a lot of questions. And I've known Spike for for a while now, since before he started making movies, before we both started making movies, and I love how curious he is. Like, if you'll say something, he will ask you, "Why do you think that?" Hold on, let's back up. Like, why do you think that is, you know? He's very curious about other people. Yeah, I think the, the greatest directors are have a curiosity. That's so interesting people. to hear about Spike Jones. And and his enthusiasm for life is contagious as mm-hmm. well. Sam Fuller. Sam Fuller, you know, he was a reporter, uh, a crime reporter at 17. And his movies and the way he talked to you was like headlines. It was like, bam, bam. I was playing cards when I was at AFI at a house and I noticed that all his props were around and the people were like, yeah, this is this B-movie director. This is Mark Twain's table because he loved Mark Twain we're playing on. <laughs> this B-movie director has Mark Twain's table. Somehow. He, like, and uh, they let me break in into his garage where they had everything, you know, all, all his typewriter and, and, and his war helmet. And it was like being a kid in a, in a candy shop. He had like a leather bound any idea that was good. Some of them were screenplays. Some of them were one sentence. But if he thought it was worthy, he leather bound it and put it in the wall. And then he came to visit them and kicked them out for two weeks. And I was like, will you show him my film, the damn film about the potatoes? And he saw it and invited me to come over. And for three hours, he sat down and gave me wisdom. But the thing that I was really great, he taught me about casting. He wasn't smoking his cigar, but he was chewing on it. He would get so excited, he, he had this, this also contagious enthusiasm, he would like stand up and get his face and his cigar right to my eyes. And, like, and he was like, regarding casting, Miguel, you cast on hunch. Cast your sister or cast the biggest movie star in the world. Cast your fucking neighbor or the biggest movie star. I don't fucking care, but cast on hunch. And I was like, okay. And he's like, no, 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 listen, I want you to remember this face every time you're casting. Cast on fucking hunch. You hear me? Cast on hunch. Is this now imprinted into your brain enough? Cast on hunch. And uh, boy, it's so true. It's like uh, you cannot use your brain. And people love talking about casting, about how an actor checks all the boxes and all that. It's all BS. It's a gut hunch thing. Like as a director, you're telling a story through that character. And your hunch of who can play that character that's going to move the chess pieces of that story is got to be in your body, not in your brain. Yeah, I love that. Was there another filmmaker? 
Uh, Sidney Pollock, I got to uh, develop a, a script that I never made uh, with him, and I loved him. And he was, you know, he, he's had so much good advice. He was like, never argue with an actor because you, you'll lose. <laughs> you know, what happens between action and cut? You have no control. So your job is to never get in an argument. Mm. And uh, it's a very good thing to understand. He also said, like, every great movie is two sides of a good argument. And um, that was a really good thing to also to understand. What does that mean? It means that, um, like, you have to uh, engage people in an unanswerable question. <laughs> but that, that, that one that intrigues the audience because you're proving how both sides of it is, is compelling. Those are, those are the themes that, are, that right. make, make for great movies. You know, for Beatrice at dinner, Mike wrote this beautiful script... Beatrice's side is one for compassion and taking care of loving animals and taking care of our world. That's easy to understand. But he made the other character, Doc Strutt, played by John Lithgow, also really compelling and understand, you know, like to a point, you know, he made like a, almost a nature's, you know, be like, you know, it's in us. This ambition is in us. And if we deny it, we're not going to be living to the fullest of our extent. And, and he also makes the argument, you know, the world's going to shit anyhow. Shouldn't we just enjoy it? Everything shouldn't be that sad. Um, he managed a way to make, you know, the other argument mm. just as compelling. It's true. Who gave you the advice about when you pass people on set? That's Jerry Lewis. I was obsessed with Jerry Lewis because of the Naughty Professor and the book on filmmaking, you know, the, the Total Filmmaker. Total Filmmaker. Yeah, which is a great book about directing. And so me and my producing partner, Matthew Greenfield, went to Vegas in like ninety four or five and saw a show and just like Rupert Putnick in The King of Comedy, we waited for him by the trash cans and he came out and saw that we had that book and was touched and he signed it and was like, how long are you cats in town? Like, uh, <laughs> we, we got to hang out. Well, we, we had bad day jobs, so we had like, like we got to go back to our day jobs. And he, he was like, well, call my, my uh, secretary and we'll make an appointment. That's exactly like King of Comedy. Exactly. It was a dream come true. And Call my assistant. They'll set something up. But, you know, he called us back. I was watching a Jerry Lewis movie when he called, and the answer machine went on. It was like, Mingwald, this is Jerry Lewis here. <laughs> and uh, he invited us to his boat and uh, gave us two hours of great advice. But, you know, he said, like, and he says in the book, like, you know, when you're working in a movie, you need to be, it needs to be personal. The intangibles matter. The film records the intangibles, and you have to, to. He was like, "Do not ever walk by a crew member without saying their name and hello. And if they don't say hello back to you, say, "Hey, Joe, why didn't you? You know what's what's happening? Like, you know." Yeah. And it seems like a calculated thing, but it's like it is so cumbersome, and your mind is so inundated with things that it's easy to forget that uh, human aspect that is really actually the most important thing. So I think that's that's really it saves so much trouble. I think if people do that, mm. everybody in the crew. Yeah, it sets it sets a good environment. It does. Um, I mean, it comes naturally to some people and not to others. But who gave you the advice about uh, when it comes to actors making a big show of? I got to work with Martin Scorsese in his first TV endeavor. I had a TV pilot that didn't go in uh, 19... By the way, I keep referencing these things that you told me yes. a few weeks ago, 
And all of them are like, oh, it's Martin Scorsese. Oh, it's Cindy <laughs> Pollack. I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky. Uh, but uh, I don't know why I got hired to do this pilot, to be honest. <laughs> like, I had done Chuck and Buck. I, I, I think the, 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 the writing was really bad, and like, uh, uh, and they couldn't get anybody. So uh, he hired me because he liked the way I directed one scene on Homicide, Life on the Street. And he said, you know, when you're directing, you have to, like, uh, you know, protect your, your actors' egos. If they complain about there's something in, the, in, the, in their eye line, he was like, make a big show. Just, like, take care of them. Take care of them. Like, you know, go there and be like, hey, hold on, guys. I want to clear the eye line. Da, 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 da. And your actor will feel taken care of. And it's important. That's part of, part of what you need to do is to take care of their egos. Mm. You've done your greatest hits. <laughs> and I know you said earlier you don't want to do greatest hits because you, right. you want to be present. So the last thing I want to ask you, I guess, you're 52. We've discussed your concerns now, your concerns in the past. We've sort of heard how you've got to where you are now and all the people that have shaped the director you are today. But at 52, it's a nice halfway point in, in a lot of ways. What do you want for the second half? You know, I want to make movies that, you know, bring joy and inspire, you know, and work work with people that I, that, that I want to share in that inspiration, you know. I have a movie that is about to come out called Duck Butter. I wrote it with Alia Shaktat and it's with Laia Costa. The Duplass brothers produced it and Mel Aslan and Natalie. Uh, they have the incredible team. And it, I had the best time making it because it was such a risk. So I want to take more, more risk. It was like really inspiring. Uh, we were a troop making this thing. Mm. And um, I want to do stuff like that. Um, and um, What do you want for yourself? I want to be able to be healthy while I do that for as long as possible and take care of Justine and my loved ones, you know. That's, uh, and, and, and find a way to help the next generation a little bit as well. You know, like I feel like uh, we're, at a, we're at a terrible time in history. And, you know, we have definitely, you know, take, raped this planet and we're at a very tough point. And I definitely want to find some sort of hope for the, the next generation. Well, I think you've been doing a good job. Well, thank you so much, Sam. I appreciate it, and thank you for the lovely interview. I will, I will do a small talk with you if it's like this anytime. <laughs> Miguel Arteta, thank you so much. Thanks. Special thanks this week goes out to Allie Gallo at 360 Management. Without her, this episode would not be possible. 
Beatrice at Dinner is now available on DVD through Amazon or Best Buy or wherever you find your DVDs. If you'd like to check out more of Gail's work, and you should if you haven't already, something like Cedar Rapids or Youth in Revolt, The Good Girl, or his episodes on Enlightened, you can find almost all of that on Amazon Prime. For more info about Miguel and his work, be sure to visit our website at www.talkeasypod.com. As always, our show is executive produced by David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, social media by Max Ship. Our associate producer is Valerie Ettenhofer, and the show is produced by Dylan Peck. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. I'll see you next week. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 